Well, um, we're in a longer series on gospel favorites. We've been picking stories through the, the gospels, stories of Jesus. And uh, we're in a subset of that series uh, in the weeks before Easter. We're talking about the last weeks, the last week of Christ's life. Today we come to the triumphal entry. When Jesus uh, came into Jerusalem, too much fanfare. Let me read from Matthew 21, verses 1 to 16. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you, you shall... If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying... Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never heard, I'm sorry, have you never read, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise? So it's the time of the Passover. And Jerusalem is flooded with Jewish pilgrims from all around the world. And now after three years or so of ministry, punctuated by descriptions of a horrific end that would come upon him in Jerusalem, Jesus is headed there for the last time. And let's walk through this passage. 
First of all, Jesus sends his two of his disciples out to uh, find a donkey and a colt and to take them and what to say if somebody objects. There's no explanation of why this is happening. There's no uh, no guidance except these strange instructions. And they go. Jesus was up to something. And then we're told in 4-6 to six that this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And then Zechariah 9.9 is quoted. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. For behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. So, it's clear that this was understood as the fulfillment of a messianic prophecy. And it was a prophecy that was not only a prophecy that Jesus was king, the Messiah, Jesus was king, but what kind of king he was. So, you know, many ancient texts, we're very blessed that many ancient texts describe the triumphal arrival of an, a ruler or a military hero who returns from battle and comes into a great city and is celebrated. We're, we have descriptions of the approach of the king and his entourage and the public celebration that occurs as they're coming into the city. And these ancient texts are very helpful to us because when we lay them side by side with the account of Christ's triumphal entry, they show us how Christ's entry into Jerusalem was so different from the triumphal entries of the time. The horse and the chariot are the emblems of a conqueror. But Jesus came mounted on a donkey, signifying his meekness, his patience, his gentleness, his humility. He was coming as the Prince of Peace. His attendants are not warriors bearing swords, but peasants bearing palm branches. And the announcers do not sound trumpets, but shout hosannas. In verse 7 and 8, they brought the donkey, they, they come back, they brought the donkey and the colt to put, and they put on their cloaks, and he sat on, the, on them, and most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the ground before them, and they cut branches from trees and they waved the branches and spread them on the road. Now spreading cloaks on the road before someone symbolized the submission to authority. The garments represented the people. Laying down your garment for someone to walk on signifies putting yourself under them and under their rule. We see this in 2 Kings 9.13. In the, in the, when Jehu became king, 
It says, Then in haste every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jesus is king. I'm sorry, Yehu is king. And branches seem to be the extensions of human arms lifted high in praise of God and laid on the ground that he might walk upon his praises. We see this in Leviticus 23.40. On the first day you shall take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for several seven days. Now in verse 9... Verse 9, And the crowds who went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Messiah, of course, was the fulfillment of a prophecy that God gave to David that he would have a son who would sit upon the throne forever. You can see those promises in 2 Samuel 7, in Psalm 89, in Psalm 132. The word Hosanna means save us. But it came to be used in a different way. It came to be used to declare that someone saves us. And so Hosanna to the son of David means son of David, our savior. Verses 10 and 11. When they entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Before this, Jesus had a relatively obscure ministry, ministry, but now it was anything but. For in this great act of coming into the city, the whole city was stirred up and word was spread that Jesus of Nazareth is here and he's being proclaimed as the Messiah, the son of David. Verses 12 and 13. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out. So I'll get that in a minute. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers, the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he said to them, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So it's pretty clear from Mark chapter 11, the parallel passage that this cleansing of the temple actually didn't happen immediately after the entry into Jerusalem, but probably the next day. But here Matthew purposely lays it out as if Jesus immediately went from the triumphal entry to the temple to uh, cleanse it by overturning the tables and things like that. And he did that for a reason. There are two kinds of businesses that were allowed in the temple. Animal selling, because people came from far away to offer sacrifices. And it just wasn't convenient to bring your animals with you. So they would come and they'd purchase their animals at the temple and then give them to the priest to sacrifice on their behalf. That's what it means, those who sold pigeons. The other business that was allowed in the temple was money changing. 
Because you see, people didn't just come from Judea. They came from other countries around that had different currency. And they'd come in with, with money from other places and it had to be exchanged, just like at an airport or somewhere, so that you could buy stuff in that new place. And so there were people that were exchanging money. Well, just as there were two businesses allowed in the temple, there were also two sins that went along with these businesses. First, there was marketplace corruption, where they would take advantage of vulnerable out-of-towners using unequal weights, selling defective goods, taking advantage of the people who were there to worship. And the second kind of sin that was going on was corrupt motivation where people were doing this to make a buck instead of to try to serve the worshipers and bless them in their worship. And so Jesus, knowing this and seeing this, drives them out of the temple and overturns their tables and says, My house should be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. And I don't think he said it calmly. And this is so uncharacteristic of Jesus. Why did he act this way? And that gets to the heart of what we're going to be talking about in the rest of this sermon. Obviously, he was exposing the corruption of Israel's worship. He was fulfilling Messianic prophecy from Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 to 2, which says, The Lord will suddenly come to his temple, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. So he was supposed to cleanse the temple. It was also a final warning of the coming of the destruction of that temple a generation later in 70 AD by the Romans. And it also foreshadowed the day of judgment which was coming, the day of God's vengeance at the end of history. But there's one more thing that I want us to talk about today. Jesus did this, I believe it's clear, to provoke the reaction which led to the cross. Verse 14. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Now there's so many places in the Gospels which say things like this. And the blind and the lame came to him and he healed them. That's not a big deal. If you're reading a lot about Jesus, the thing that's so different here is the place. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. In the past, he kept most of his healings under wraps. But now he's doing it right out in front of it of everyone. This, the place is crowded and he's healing people in front of them all. The Jewish leaders are all there and, and all their regalia and he's healing people over and over right in their, before their noses. 
it was hard for anyone not to notice. Verses 15 and 16. But when the chief priest, this it gets the reaction you'd expect. The chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosan to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? I love Matthew's irony here. They saw the wonderful things he did and they were indignant. Amazing. The Jewish leaders boiled over with anger after seeing Jesus come into Jerusalem acting like a king and the crowds praising him like he was the Messiah. But instead of laying low and letting things cool down, Jesus heads straight for the temple and begins turning over the tables. And then, to rub salt in their wounds, he begins healing people right out in the open. And then those darn little kids. You know how kids learn a song or a line from a movie one day and then they go on the whole rest of the week going around the house saying that thing that they learned. Well, that's what's going on here. After the triumphal entry, little kids were running around the temple area, probably not even knowing what they were doing, and they were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David, because they'd just been to this big celebration, this big parade where everybody was shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David, and it got in their minds. And this drove the Pharisees out of their minds. They were fit to be tied they and the other Jewish leaders. And this anger is raw. This is not carefully crafted response like at many other times when they planned what they were going to say when they came up and confronted Jesus. They were beside themselves, out of control. And this was just the beginning. Four to five days later, it culminated in the crucifixion. And it doesn't seem like Jesus is trying to appease their anger, does it? But rather, he's provoking it purposely. It was almost like he had a death wish. A death wish driven by love. But why were the Jewish leaders so disturbed? Weren't they waiting for the Messiah? Now he's here, and yet instead of celebrating, they're so angry. Well, you know, it's always hard to get the victims of oppression to see their own sinfulness. They're so absorbed in the sinfulness of the people who are oppressing them that they can't even think about their own failings. The Jewish leaders were eagerly expecting the Messiah to come and conquer Rome, the bad guys the oppressors. But instead, Jesus came and confronted them. The righteous ones, or so they thought. And they didn't like that one bit. And 
Jesus said to them in 16, the end of 16 and in 17, in answer to their question, are you hearing what these children are saying? Jesus says, yes. <laughs> I love that. Yes, I hear. Have you never heard out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? Well, if you're trying to appease their anger, if you're trying to get everybody to calm down here, that's not the response that you, you want to give. He's provoking them even more. He's acknowledging that he's worthy of their praise. He's actually calling himself God here by saying that because this verse is about how even babies utter their praise to God. And so that's what he's accepting. That's the passage. Two things I want to go into. First of all, many times during Jesus' ministry, he told people not to tell anyone about his miracles. He tried to keep his identity to some extent under wraps. In Matthew 9.30, we read about two blind men Jesus healed. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about this. In Mark 1, 43 and 44, Jesus heals a leper and then sternly charges him, see that you say nothing to anyone. When Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead in Mark 5, 43, her parents were astonished, but he strictly charged them not that no one should know about it. And when Jesus healed the deaf and mute man in Mark 7.36, he charged the entire crowd to tell no one. Now people didn't always follow his guidance, of course. In fact, in Mark 7.36 it says, the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And we can understand their excitement and their amazement and their gratitude. But there's something also that's strange going on here that's always perplexed me a little bit. Jesus, you see, frequently rebuked. He taught his people what to do. And then when they didn't do it, he would feel very free in love to rebuke them for not living according to the ways that he taught them. But though Jesus frequently and repeatedly warned people not to publicize his miraculous works, he never once rebuked anyone for doing so. They were directly disobeying Jesus' words and yet there was no accountability, no correction. Jesus never uttered a word of criticism about it. To their face or to others. He also never explained why he wanted to keep it quiet. And never explained why he didn't rebuke those who didn't keep it quiet. So why did he try to keep his miracles quiet? Well, there are a number of hints in the Gospels about this. First of all, it was a distraction from his greater purpose and mission. His words 
and his atoning sacrifice. The miracles were constantly derailing people and distracting them from who he was. You know that a healing is something so important to people, but the fact is, a healing doesn't really do that much. It just gives someone a few more years, but then they die again. Healing doesn't really solve any of man's big problems, just their, one of their tiny little problems. And so he didn't want them distracted from the big problems, the big issues. When the leper was cleansed in Mark 1, 43 to 45, even though that leper was told not to mention it to anyone, this is what it says. He went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news. And then it tells us the result of his spreading the news. It says, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Now, ask any celebrity and they'll tell you what a terrible burden it is to be a celebrity and how that makes your life so hard. Because every time you go out to get a gallon of milk at the store, all of a sudden there's a buzz and everybody's giving you attention. Everybody wants your autograph. Everybody wants to tell you how much they love you or whatever. It's a pain. And if you think it's hard to act inconspicuous as a celebrity, imagine how hard it is to act inconspicuous when you're the Son of God in human flesh does miracles you see Jesus wasn't after short term fame he wanted to build an eternal kingdom and now listen to this in order for Jesus to build an eternal kingdom there had to be an inspired record of his teachings and his works that would last through the centuries of human history. But that couldn't happen if his days were taken up dealing with mass hysteria caused by short-term fame. That short-term fame would have prevented him from spending time with his disciples and dealing with individual people and small groups like after his arrest once he's, he was arrested think about what, how crazy his life was there was no more time to be with his disciples there was no more time to deal with individuals so let me ask another question so why now all of a sudden does Jesus go public. Jesus' life was carefully choreographed. Every step he took, every action he performed, every word he spoke, every pause was perfectly planned and timed. Just as he was morally and spiritually perfect, he was perfect with regard to timing as well. Several times in his life, Jesus said, no, I can't do that. It's not yet my time. Now, if 
he had let loose earlier, it would have led to his death earlier. And it wouldn't, even, even though it wouldn't have yet been time for him to die. As it was, he had to avert because of people's not because of people's blabbing about his miracles, he had to avert death several times with a little burst of divine power where you know everybody's surrounding him with stones ready to stone him and it says he just walked away. Now, though, the foundation has been laid. The time has come It's time for Jesus to dive in. It's time to precipitate a crisis. And that's what's going on in this passage. With the triumphal entry. With the cleansing of the temple. With the healing of people in the temple. With his words to the Jewish leaders who objected. All this was precipitating the crisis that led to the cross. You know, right now in our society, one of the great idols that we worship is the idol of painlessness. Not eternal pain, of course. Eternal pain is worth avoiding at all costs. We're desperately trying, though, to avoid all earthly pain. But earthly pain is one of the crucial ingredients in God's remedy for eternal pain. And that's why Jesus precipitated this crisis and opened the floodgates. And sure enough, it worked. Conflict exploded and pain resulted. Redeeming pain. Atoning pain. But you see, he was not going to die when they wanted him to die. He was going to die when it was time to die. According to the way that God had mapped it out and choreographed the whole thing. It wasn't their decision. It was his decision. No one takes my life from me, Jesus said. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority from my Father to lay it down and to take it up again. John 10, 18. Remember in the aftermath of all this, the believers praying together in Acts chapter 4, part of their prayer was, In this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Just as things looked most out of control, things were actually so perfectly choreographed that 2,000 years later, we're still in awe. 
let me talk to you. Do you think the great choreographer of the life of Jesus is not also the choreographer of your life and my life? Was it not for our sakes that the life of Christ was choreographed? But one of the perpetual problems of sinners like you and me is that instead of trusting Jesus' timing, we want to be the choreographers of our own lives. We think we see deficiencies in God's choreography and we think we can do better. But you can't do any better than God's choreography. In the old movie, Jesus of Nazareth, there's a scene where the crowd is yelling at Pilate, Free Barabbas and crucify Jesus! Meanwhile, Mary Magdalene is wandering through the crowd frantically, shouting and screaming, No, no, free Jesus! But no one hears her. But in the end, Mary Magdalene was glad that God didn't answer her prayers that Jesus be freed. She had actually without realizing it, been praying against her own salvation. And so it is with us. So many times we are railing against some disappointment or pining over some lost opportunity when in reality we've just dodged a bullet. And God is preparing something for us far greater than the thing we thought we needed. You might have heard the disappointment our pastor search committee recently experienced when a promising candidate withdrew his name from consideration. In a situation like that, it's so easy to be discouraged. But the fact is, only God knows where that path would have led. And if he says that's not the path to go down, then we have to trust that he knows best. None of us want the wrong man to be pastor of our church. And if God wants us to wait, and if God wants us to spend more time on this, We have to trust that that is best. And God often doesn't have apparently any sense of urgency about clarifying why he's doing what he's doing. He just asks us to trust him. And that means not thinking that you're a better choreographer than God is. Sometimes our Lord gives instructions without explanation. Go to the village in front of you and you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. You see, Jesus made arrangements 
that he didn't tell them about. And Jesus made arrangements that he hasn't told us about either. And we need to let God make the arrangements for our lives and trust him to do it well. Right now in my life, my mind wants to run in a million directions. Questions about selling our house, questions about finding a house, questions about retirement and what that's going to be like, questions about the church and finding a new pastor, and questions about what our relationship with the church is going to be in the future, and questions about our financial situation in retirement, and what's going to happen to us and our health and all that kind of stuff as we age. All these questions. But you know something? For almost 70 years, Jesus has been proving himself to us over and over again. His timing and his provision have always been exquisite. Why should we now doubt him? And yet here we are, almost 70 years old, and we're still battling with worry. The Lord keeps graciously reminding me of 1 Peter 5, 6-9. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and in the proper time He will exalt you. Cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded and watchful Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers and sisters around the world. How about you? What are the directions your thoughts tend to run in? May God teach us all to trust in the great choreographer of our lives and wait upon him. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you are such a great Savior. None of us could improve on what you did. And Lord, we're humbled by the fact that part of us keeps wanting to try to improve your work. We know that that's not a good part of us. We pray that you would help us to mortify those evil thoughts and to rest in the one who has proven himself many times over to us. Thank you for your care for us, for your wisdom, for your power. Thank you that in the end, we'll be able to look back and see that everything was just right for us to learn what we need to learn and see what we needed to see and become what we needed to become. And now, Lord, we thank you so much.
for the invitation to come to the table of our Lord. And we pray for refreshment and strength as we partake of his, uh, these symbols of his atoning work, of his self-sacrifice. And pray, Lord, that it might drive us to do the same, to lay ourselves upon the altar, to give ourselves over to you, and in your own time, knowing that you will lift us up and exalt us. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.